right, well, we'll finish up our discussion of progressive revelation, the third principle that we're dealing with regarding interpretation. The first one, again, was the priority of the original languages, and the second one was the accommodation of Scripture, and now progressive revelation. And that's the idea that uh, God revealed himself a little bit over time. Okay? Each time he starts a new dispensation, we learn something more about him. Or each time he makes another covenant with somebody, we learn something more about him. Um, several verses there. I actually added a couple, uh, Ephesians 3, 2 through 6, and uh, along with that, John 10, 16, to illustrate progressive revelation. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul's talking about a mystery that had been a secret before, but now it had been revealed to him, and he is teaching it. That's the idea that the Gentiles would be brought in along with the Jews. So it starts off as a secret that we later extrapolate from the promises to Abraham. Because it's given at that point, and then it's revealed. Kind of well, in a sense, because it says in all, yeah, through Abraham, all the world would be blessed. Right. right. Um, but we don't understand that. Exactly. Exactly. So that Paul is clarifying what that's all about. And in John 10, Jesus kind of predicts that when he says that he has other sheep besides Israel that he needs to bring in to the same fold. That's basically what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 3. The Jews are brought, or the Gentiles are brought in with the Jews and both approach God on the same basis. That's the basis of faith. So the significance of, of uh, progressive revelation is to remember that when you are looking at scripture, especially Old Testament scriptures, you have to interpret them in the context in which they are written. You cannot apply what we know about God to an Old Testament passage because they didn't know that. So they couldn't have written about that. And then we talked about the two ways of approaching this, and that's dispensationalism and covenant theology. We're not going to go over that all again, just, just kind of summarize. Dispensationalism says that God dealt with people or uh, managed his kingdom on earth through different means at different periods of time. Covenant theology says that God worked with people on the basis of his covenants. On the information level, Covenants and dispensations are pretty clear in Scripture. There's no problem there. But when you get into the ideologies, then you have some conflicts because dispensationalism looks at Scripture objectively. You get the meaning from Scripture from what Scripture says. And dispensationalism is based on the uh, literal grammatical view of Scripture. It means what it says. Covenant theology, on the other hand, is allegorical. Scripture doesn't mean what it says. You have to apply a spiritual meaning. It's symbolic. It's allegorical. So you kind of flip a coin. Now, covenant theology, people might say, well, we get our understanding of Scripture from the early church fathers. And so we take their interpretation of Scripture. So don't blame us. You know, we're not flipping a coin. We're depending on that authority. But the early church fathers followed the same allegorical approach. So you know, their understanding of scripture is, is 
You know, they flipped the coin, so to speak. Not that they were necessarily wrong. It's just that in history, you got to take the context into consideration, okay? Even when it deals with the early church fathers. So we looked at that chart, which you can't read, but I gave you the handout last time. Uh, just one, I don't want to say correction, but adjustment on that chart. It's, it talks about, um, in, in that section there, the dealing with Israel and the church. Covenant theology, you know, they used to say that the new covenant over, takes over and the old covenant's gone, and so the church has replaced Israel. Now they're, saying, they're leaning more towards saying Israel, the nation Israel in the Old Testament, was the church in the Old Testament. And so now the new covenant church, the New Testament church, uh, has not so much replaced Israel, but is an outgrowth of Israel. So we have the church in the Old Testament, we have the church in the New Testament. All the promises given to Israel in the Old Testament were actually given to the church because Israel was the church in the Old Testament. And that kind of, um, is a, we've got a contradiction there because <clears throat> the, uh, the nation of Israel in the Old Testament was portrayed as an unfaithful wife and the church in the New Testament is the virgin bride. Mm -hmm. uh, how does that work? <laughs> Don't ask me. <laughs> ask the covenant theologians. <laughs> you know, the comparison doesn't work. Yeah, well, it's not the first time. This is this is the difficulty again with with covenant theology. I see it as a huge difficulty. Other people don't, but Scripture never says that Israel was the church in the Old Testament. Somebody added that later on. Now they're flipping the coin. There's one verse there in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, where it says the church in the wilderness. Hmm. And that's the word ecclesia. Yeah. Interesting. The church in the wilderness. Yeah. Well, I have to look at that's obviously an analogy. He's making that analogy to make a point. I have to go back and read the context. Yeah. Well, in a sense. Israel was called out. God made them his special people, you know, separated them from the rest of the nations. So it could be in that sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, to me, it's a little strange. Uh, so just to wrap this up with it, and so this next um, slide, I don't have a handout for you because I think that's big enough. You can probably see it. It's all, it's what we've already said. So it's just putting it into visual form. So we have down the, uh, the left here, the aspect or maybe the level. We have an information level and an ideology level. And then you have the perspective and then you have the results and then the explanation. So on the information level, we have dispensations and covenants. There's no, there's no conflict there. There's harmony because Scripture shows both. But when you get to the ideology level, you start to have problems because now you're dealing with dispensationalism and covenant theology. You're not dealing with just the facts of covenants and dispensations. You're dealing with what people say about those things. And they approach things from different perspectives. So you have issues. So the conflict here is that these positions treat the evidence differently, and so they come up with different 
conclusions and interpretations of Scripture. It's sort of like evolutionism and creationism. Okay, they both look at the same evidence, but they look at it from different perspectives and so come up with different conclusions <laughs> about what that evidence proves, if it proves anything. The evolutionists start with the assumption that evolution is a fact, and that's the way things happen. So whatever evidence they find, all those bones and rocks and stuff, they interpret in terms of evolution. So they think, now, if evolution is true, and we know it is, then what would we expect to find? And so they make tests. They say, okay, we're going to test the evidence to verify that it supports evolution. But they configure the test to look for signs of evolution <laughs> that they put in there. So they then put the evidence to the test and it shows evolution. They say, see, but it's circular because they program the test to say that. It's not objective. Creationism looks at the universe, the organized, systematic way things work as being the result of an intelligent creator. Because you don't get purposeful organization without someone putting it together that way. Things don't happen by accident. The evolutionists don't want to believe that. One evolutionist, I forget who it was, I can't remember his name. Anyway, he said, he said yeah, I know. The universe looks as though it's organized, but you have to understand it's not. That's not being objective, is it? Yeah, it makes no sense. So it's the, you know, this is the same kind of thing. Where you start in interpreting scripture determines where you're going to end up. So if you start by looking at scripture objectively, you get the meaning out of the text, you're going to come up with one interpretation. If you start by assuming that the text doesn't really mean what it says, but it points to some other spiritual meaning, you're going to come up with an entirely different interpretation. Just the well, exegesis is kind of like a process, but it gets down to that. So if you approach from a covenant theology point of view, you're going to come up with a spiritualized meaning. If you go from a dispensational point of view, you're going to come up with an objective meaning. Covenant theology has no objective way to determine what Scripture means. To me, that's kind of about the greatest difficulty <laughs> with covenant theology, because it's all kind of guesswork. So again, progressive revelation. God revealed himself a little bit at a time through both dispensations and covenants. Okay. And how you look at all of that progressive revelation, either through dispensationalism or covenant theology, is going to influence how you understand scripture. So when applying this to hermeneutics, you've got to be careful how you approach. So any uh, questions or comments, observations about progressive revelation? We're going to get an example of this in a minute here. We'll, do, we'll practice some hermeneutics here. So we go on to the next principle, which is historical propriety. We talked about the uh, priority of the original languages. This is historical propriety, not priority. What does propriety mean? It comes from, actually, similar word is proper. Yeah. They both come from the same root, and the root word is the root word for property. 
this word propriety originally meant the nature of something, the properties that make something what it is. So propriety had to do with something as it is, <laughs> the basic nature of the thing, what makes it what it is. But over time, the meaning has shifted, so we don't think of it in those terms. Now we think of it as appropriateness. And you can still see how that works. It goes back to property. It's the thing that makes something what it is, so that's what's right. So this is the appropriateness or rightness of considering the historical context, the historical propriety. So the historical context of Scripture shows what people believed or didn't believe concerning what was written or spoken, and so helps us understand what any given passage means. You have to take what was written in the historical context to get a clear understanding of it, because the context influences it, all right? Now, be careful, this, this is not higher criticism. Remember when we talked about the German higher critics, they began by saying scripture is not divinely inspired because there is no God. The writers of scripture were humans writing the way any other human writer writes for the same reasons. It's whatever is going on around them. They are prompted to write based on what they are experiencing in their historical context. So if you want to know what they're talking about, look at their historical context. They are responding to the his that history. It's not, there's no spiritual meaning there. It's a purely secular, secular book, secular literature. This is not what we're talking about when we talk about the historical uh, propriety. Rather, what we're talking about is the fact that Scripture addresses contextual issues. Scripture is designed to deal with those issues that are going on. Okay? So knowing those issues clarifies the point of the passage. We can go look at the messages of the prophets to Israel. You know, they all had, we talked about this before, they all had pretty much the same message. If you sin, you're going to be in trouble. Guess what? You sin. So you're in line for judgment. If you repent, you know, then it'll be fine. But you haven't repented, therefore judgment is coming. But God's going to re restore you when it's all over. After that judgment has had its effect and you have repented, God will restore you. So the prophets all had pretty much the same message, but they spoke that message within different historical contexts. And so looking at the context will help us understand the prophecy, uh, the message of the prophets. So <clears throat> running with, the, with Israel, because we know they were, they were conquered over different nations, I mean, the lower Israel, higher Israel, lower Judea. Mm -hmm. So by knowing which kingdom fell first and then putting it in contrast to what the prophet was teaching, helps with that historical. Right. And we're going to go through that right now. <laughs> okay. So we're going to practice a little bit of, of hermeneutics in reference to this idea of the emphasis of the, or the importance of the historical context. So you can go ahead and turn to Isaiah 7 if you've got your Bible there. <clears throat> this will also relate back to progressive revelation. And we'll see how progressive revelation limits how we can understand this prophecy. 
Now, we're not going to go into a bunch of historical detail here because we don't have time for that and that's not our purpose. The background to these to, the, to this chapter, you can read in 2 Kings chapters 15 and 16. It's kind of an overview of the kings of Israel and Judah. And it says what they did, whether they were good, whether they were bad, etc., etc. And it does talk about their interaction. So if you want some historical scope, you can read those chapters, 2 Kings 15 and 16. Let's go to verse 14, since this is, this, this is a key issue here. This is a prophecy by Isaiah to Ahaz, king of Judah. So verse 14, we're familiar with this verse. You could say this in your sleep and probably have. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Matthew cites this in chapter 1. But we don't care about what Matthew said. We're not in Matthew. Matthew comes 700 years later. So we cannot incorporate what we understand about how this verse is applied in the New Testament to help us understand what it's talking about in the Old Testament. Progressive revelation, you can't go backwards. Okay, you have to take the passage in its context. Uh, I was going to look this up and forgot. Somewhere, I think it's in Paul somewhere, he says that the prophets, after they prophesied, went back and read what they had written down or somebody else had written down when they spoke it just to figure out what it meant. Because God gave them the message and they spoke the message, but they had no idea what it was talking about because it was in reference to the future. So they're trying to figure out what it was all about. So Isaiah probably doing the same thing here. We know from our understanding of Matthew that verse 14 refers to the birth of Christ, the Messiah. Israel was looking for a Messiah. Uh, this is why it was such a shame for a woman to be barren in Israel, because she could not be the bearer of the Messiah. And they all hoped that they would be. So they were looking for that. But Isaiah is not talking about that. This verse has been applied to the Messiah in Matthew. But again, we're not in Matthew. Isaiah didn't have that in mind. He's dealing with this situation in this historical context. So to understand this prophecy, we have to understand the context. Verses 15 and 16 kind of finish off the prophecy. This is about the child mentioned in verse 14. 15 says, he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good. For before the boy will know enough to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be forsaken. Isn't that enlightening? So how does that fit the, the historical context? We need the historical context to know what that verse means, or that those three verses mean. So let's go back to verse 1 to get the context of what's happening here. And you may have read this already, um, studied this already, but that's okay. Repetition of word, anybody. Uh, unless he was being spanked. So verse 1 says, Now it came about in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So we know we have a time frame here. Actually, there's one more king, and that's Hezekiah, the son of, of Ahaz. 
and Hezekiah is king when Babylon comes in. Okay. We're dealing with a divided kingdom here. The ten tribes to the north and Judah used to be two tribes, now it's basically one in the south. And so Ahaz is the second to the last king before Babylon comes in and conquers Judah. It says that Rezin, king of Aram, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not conquer it. I think verse 1 there, which we just read, is kind of a summary of what's about to be about to be discussed. It's like when we, when I was still working at IBC, whenever we wrote a memo, we would start with a summary, you know, what we found out, and then we give all the details <laughs> to support it, okay? I think that's what's happening here. Because if, as you read on, they didn't really get to Jerusalem. They got only to Ephraim, which is on the northern border of Judah. They didn't get to Jerusalem. But Jerusalem is the capital. Okay, so if they're on the border about to take over Judah, in essence, they're going to get to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is kind of a summary or standing instead of the whole country. So we know that their attempt failed. So now we're going to read the details. Uh, verse 2, when it was reported to the house of David, I think that's a reference to Ahaz. He's the king. He's in charge of the house of David. So he would be the one who's naturally going to get the report because he's in charge. Saying the Arameans have camped in Ephraim, his heart so the his can't be the house of David, it's got to be Ahaz. His heart and the hearts of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake with the wind. So here is this huge army right on the northern border <laughs> about to enter, and Ahaz is scared to death. Now, he was not a nice guy. You know, if you go back to Second Kings and read about it, he did some bad things. So he's shaking in his boots. So is the whole country. Verse 3, God responds, and it says, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and your son, Shear Yashub. Don't name your kids that, okay? Uh, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. <laughs> so God even tells him where Ahaz is. And take your son with you. What does his son's name mean? It's probably in the margin there. Yeah. Right. A remnant shall return. So that's the name of Isaiah's son, and Isaiah is taking his son with him to talk to the king. Why? We'll find out. And notice the message, verse 4, and say to him, take care and be calm. Take care doesn't, in this case, necessarily mean to be cautious, as we usually interpret it. It just means pay attention, be calm, have no fear, and do not be faint-hearted because of these two stubs of smoldering firebrand. <laughs> He's basically using a nice image there to indicate these guys are no threat. I mean, they're charcoal. They're what's left over when you throw sticks in the fire and they're all burned up. They're not a threat. He goes on, on account of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Ramalia. So 
historically, Pika was the king of the Northern Ten Tribes. He decided to invade Judah to take over. And he recruited Rezin, king of Aramea, related to Syria, to help him do that. Don't know what deal they made, but he agreed. So these two armies then are there ready to invade Judah. And Ahaz is afraid. And God says, don't worry about it. They're not a problem. And he explains why in verse 5, because Aram with Ephraim, Ephraim is standing in for the northern ten tribes, just as Jerusalem is standing in for all of Judah. Uh, you'll see that throughout the Old Testament. Ephraim is a shorthand for the northern ten tribes. Uh, because Aram with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has planned evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah, notice not Jerusalem here, but Judah, and terrorize it and make for ourselves a breach in its walls, obviously not the walls of Judah, but the walls of Jerusalem. The whole country doesn't have a wall. But so Jerusalem and Judah are synonyms in this passage and set up the son of Tabael as king in the midst of it. So they plan to go and conquer Jerusalem and put up a puppet king. This is their threat. Verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. So he is reassuring Ahaz, don't worry about these guys. Yeah, it looks bad, but I've got it covered. Don't worry. He explains why. Verse 8, for the head of Aram is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And the little parentheses there, now within another 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered so that it is no longer a people. Verse 9, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. He's already characterized these guys as charcoal. They're not a threat. And then he says, if you will not believe, you surely shall not last. So God's saying, I've got this covered. In 65 years, they're not even going to exist anymore. I've got it covered. And if you don't trust me, you're in trouble. You're not going to survive this. Now, you might be thinking, 65 years? <laughs> what does that have to do <laughs> with this army <laughs> on the border right now? I think it's God is telling them... <coughs> I've got these guys under control. You know, in 65 years, they're not going to exist. So they're not going to be a problem for you now because I've got it under control. So 65 years is a long time, but he's God now. He's under control now. So you don't have to worry about this. Verse 10, we get to uh, the confrontation here. Ahaz is arrogant. Verse 10 says, Then the Lord, through Isaiah, spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deep as Sheol or high as heaven. So if you want some reassurance that I will take care of this, ask me to prove it. Give me a test. Anything you want, I will do it just to show you that you're going to be safe. All you have to do is trust me. Remember, Ahaz was not a good king. He was a bad guy. Okay, idol worship and all that stuff. So, you know, Gideon put out a fleece. He did it kind of presumptuously, like, I don't trust you, God. You have to prove to me that you're going to do this. Well, God accommodated that 
You know, he didn't condemn Gideon for that. I'm sure he was disappointed, but he didn't condemn him for it. Here, he is offering Ahaz the opportunity to do that. So what does Ahaz say? Yeah, verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. That's super pious. You know, we have the same thing happening in Matthew 4 when Satan is tempting Jesus. And he says, take yourself up to the pinnacle of the temple and jump off and God will you know, send his angels to protect you. And Jesus says that if it's written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You don't put yourself in a dangerous situation and expect God to get you out of it. That's testing God. And so Ahaz is saying, I'm not going to do that. But that's not what's happening here. God offered him the opportunity. So he was not, he would not have been acting presumptuously to take God up on the offer. So he's, he's faking it. You know, he's pretending to be super pious when he just doesn't really want God involved in this at all. 13, then he, Isaiah, said, Listen now, O house of David, Ahaz, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? You are being presumptuous. You know, God has been patient with you. He has offered you this opportunity and you're slapping him in the face. Would you do that to a fellow human? Probably not. You know, you hit back. So the, then we get to 14. Therefore, because you have refused to ask for a sign, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You didn't want to ask for one, so God will give you one. And then we have this verse about the virgin bearing a child and the call his name Emmanuel, and that he will eat curds and honey at the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, etc. So in the historical context, we can't read this, well, because we know Matthew, we can read this as a prediction of the Messiah, but they didn't see it as that. <laughs> now, part of our problem is we get hung up on details. We've talked about this before. The difference between the Western mind and the Eastern mind. <laughs> we of the Western mind want all the details to line up. So we get hung up on words like virgin here. You know there's a debate about what, what that really means. Does it mean a virgin or it just mean a young woman, you know? different points of view, linguists, who cares? <laughs> that's not the point. In the context here, that's not an issue. We're dealing with this invading army. And the son, the important thing here is this son is going to be named Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. What is Isaiah's son's name? A remnant shall return. God has given Ahaz two indications that he's got this under control. <laughs> a remnant shall return. You're not going to be wiped out by this. And God is with you. So relax. You know, I've got this handled. But Ahaz doesn't want to do that. Now, I think this gets more to timing than anything else. The Eastern mind, again, isn't hung up on the details. You know, Jesus taught in parables all the time. Why did he do that? Because Jews think in pictures, in stories, okay? We can be frustrated by some of those parables because not all the details line up. But the Jew would say, did you get the point or not? 
So the details don't line up all the way. That's not the point. Get the point. Notice he talks about timing here when he gets to the child in 15 and 16 about eating um, curds and honey. Curds is what's left over when you drain the water out of the milk. You know, little Miss Muffet eating her curds and whey. Whey is the liquid that's drained off. So, uh, <clears throat> and honey. Now, some people say, well, the significance here is that curds and honey are both natural sources of food. You don't really have to do much to cultivate that. If it's your cow, obviously you have to feed it and milk it, <laughs> but it's a natural product. You don't have to grow it, you know, and all of that stuff. And that, that honey was one of the first foods that they fed to children, presumably after the child is weaned and starts to eat solid food, honey was one of the first things they gave it. And so they're saying that this is all going to happen. This deliverance that God is going to bring about will happen by the time a child is weaned from its mother. Now, how long does that take? A couple of years? Not very long. And, and uh, some people say that this is also an example because starting in verse 17 and the rest of the chapter, God shows what he's going to do to Judah if they don't straighten up. And they say this is part of the judgment because they will have those natural sources of food, but they're not going to have any cultivated stuff because enemies are coming in and all that stuff. Could it not uh, also indicate that the timeline for the birth of the child a young woman uh, who is a virgin uh, will then uh, uh, consummate a relationship with a man, and nine months later she'll have the child, and uh, it's just a, a progression of what's uh, what's going to be happening. That could be, yeah. I've heard this interpreted that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a timeline. Uh, showing the showing Ahaz and the people of Judah that this isn't going to last very long. We talked about 65 years before, but even now we're down to a couple of years that God is going to handle this. And actually, uh, I think in, in 2 Kings 16, it, it happens pretty closely after this. I read in one source that it's like a couple years after this situation, God had gotten rid of those enemies. So it happened rather quickly. So the idea of a child being born, getting to the you know, age where he's starting to eat solid food, you know, it's not a very long time. Figuratively speaking, because you could say, well, yeah, but that's two years. They still have the army on the border now. But the point is not how long. The point is it's going to happen soon. <laughs> it's going to be quick, okay? especially compared to 65 years. And it talks about knowing to refuse evil and choose good. Some people interpret that as like the age of accountability. When a kid gets to the place where he starts to realize that he shouldn't be doing certain things, you know, conscience develops. We know that all kids are sinners from birth. <laughs> you know, you know that. <laughs> you don't have to teach them to be selfish. You don't have to teach them to lie. But there comes a point when they realize that what they're doing is not right. Uh, how does that relate to Christ, though? That's an exception. <laughs> yeah, because he... Demonstrative about coming, coming of age. Yeah. 
So how does that? Well, again, not all the details are going to line up. Some things are not significant. You know, you got to get the main point. Yeah. Well, I assume you're going to get to the point of telling us why Matthew put this verse. <laughs> yeah, we'll do that. <laughs> okay. That's true because this was written first. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, creative plagiarism. Uh, so I, I think also this, this idea of choosing uh, good rather than evil may be, and this is an idea that popped into my head, since he's talking about eating curds and honey there, it may relate to food. You know, kids put everything in their mouth because it's one of the ways they relate to their environment. Eventually, they decide what is good to put in their mouth and what isn't. So by the time this child knows curds and honey are good to eat, but other things aren't. And when does a kid develop that sense of taste? Again, two, three years old. Okay. So whichever way you look at it, it's going to be about the same timeline. So the overall point is Ahaz, don't worry about these guys. I've got it handled. In 65 years, they're not even going to exist. In just a couple of years, or even shorter than that, since this, I think, is figurative, they're not going to be a problem. He's already told Ahaz and Judah, don't worry about this. It's under control. So they're not going to be a problem very much longer. They're charcoal. Probably not even going to burn anymore. And so we're back to the propriety of the historical context. We know from Matthew that this is a reference, a prophecy about the coming Messiah. But we can't read that into Isaiah chapter 7 because that's, that wasn't what they were dealing with. They were dealing with this pending invasion. And this prophecy was given as a sign to show them they had nothing to worry about. But it's a sign they don't understand anyway. Well, they get the point that it's going to... Yeah, and this is going to be over soon. You know, that's the overall point. We don't mean from this time until the captivity, how, how much time until I don't have the exact dates, but this is, is um, just before... Uh, the northern ten tribes fell to Assyria, uh -huh. Second Kings 16. We'll show you the timeline there. So that was 722 B.C., so count back 65 years. Okay. Was there maybe recorded later in Babylon? Not that we know of. In reading it that way, to interpret that way, to say a young woman will be with child and bear a son. Mm -hmm. well, I mean, they're probably hundred babies <laughs> right. within the next six months right. or whatever. Right. And so, how could how could you choose that as a sign that a, a woman is mm -hmm. going to bear, bear a son? Yeah. Yeah, I think again, this is I would I would see this as being parallel to the parables that Jesus used in the New Testament. He's not really talking in this context about a specific woman or a woman in general having a baby. He's just telling a story, you know. A woman's going to have a baby. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. So they get the context. They get the picture. 
but I don't think it's referring to a specific person. So that's the point of the, of the historical context. It tells you what the passage means based on what they were dealing with. And you can't take what we know from later revelation to help us understand this, because they weren't talking about that later revelation. They didn't have it. So we couldn't even latch on to that as prophecy for another 700 years. Right. Which brings us to Matthew. Why did Matthew include this as a prophecy of the Messiah? Because the Holy Spirit told him to. We see that, again, looking back, 2020 hindsight, and we can see this as a prophecy of the coming Messiah. But they couldn't. Yeah. Yeah. So we have to... How am I going to say this? What's that? It sounds dangerous. What does it? look back and establish prophecy retrospectively. Yeah. Well, the only, way, the only reason we know it's prophecy is because it was fulfilled. Yeah. But at the time it was given, they weren't thinking in terms of future. Yeah, that wasn't the point. That wasn't the point. So this idea, this prophecy about the child, Emmanuel, is all related to this immediate situation with the impending invasion and God reassuring Ahaz that he's got it under control. And the name of the child <clears throat> is another assurance. Exactly. I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm, right. I'm on your side. I'm right. At least I'm with a remnant. Yeah. Well, God's always talking about a remnant of his people. Yeah. It's almost like you have to forget what you've learned. Exactly. Yeah. I was going to say, and I hesitated to say it, but you kind of brought it up. <laughs> because we know so much, because of the revelation we have, when we go back to the Old Testament, we kind of have to dumb it down. We have to forget what we know, because we cannot use that to interpret something that was written before that came about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So that's why you've got to consider the historical context. So again, this is not higher criticism that says all you have is the historical context. We know there's spiritual meaning going on here, but the historical context helps us understand what they're saying. So you can check the resource list for those historical references if you want to, you know, Bible background and all of that stuff. Well, you know, we have a we have a built-in context here for the Old Testament. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles give us that historical background for everything that's happening in the kingdom, the Davidic kingdom, both the United Kingdom and the Divided Kingdom. The outside resources help you to understand what those things are talking about. All right. So, any uh, observations or comments about any of that? This puts into question what we have taught in different times. Well, prophecy is like looking at a mount, a, a, a group of mountains. You see one stick up here and one stick up here, and you don't know how far off mm -hmm. that one is. You can't tell. And I've always looked at that as, as this way. That there are many prophecies, for example, the prophecy about Jerusalem or Bethlehem being the mm -hmm. birthplace of Messiah. They couldn't possibly 
But we look at that and say, yes, they were looking at something that's going to happen 400 years down the line. Mm -hmm. And this would be, to me, fall into that category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because they weren't thinking in those terms. They were just looking at their immediate situation. So the prophets maybe did that. What does this mean? <laughs> Looking ahead. It just sounds so dangerous that you exploit the wrong way. Yes. That's why. That's why we do hermeneutics to minimize that risk. I I can't say eliminate the risk because there are some passages you never will understand. All right. So. Uh, just to prime the pump here, next week we'll get into the fifth principle, which is the principle of ignorance. So you'll have a week to think about that. Well played, sir. All right, let's close in prayer.